0: This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. Altrocast. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists... ...and why they do what they do. As a lifelong music fan, I like to learn about the people and the stories behind great music. This episode is about that, as I spoke to three drummers who you most likely have heard perform... Mark Stepro is a Los Angeles-based drummer whose credits include lots of people. Train, Keith Urban, Panic at the Disco, Butch Walker, Courtney Love, Jackson Brown, Aaron Lee Taschen, just lots of people. Victor Andrizzo is a Los Angeles-based drummer, even though he was born in New York, and he's played drums for the likes of Alanis Marset, Beck, Willie Nelson, Avril Lavigne, Gwen Stefani, Cheryl Crow, Scott Weiland, Queens of the Stone Age, Shakira, uh, Chris Cornell, just lots of people as well. And Stephen Wolf, or Wolf for short, he's a New York bass drummer who's been part of major recordings by Katy Perry, Britney Spears, Miley Cyrus, Beyonce, the Bee Gees, and Alicia Keys. First up are highlights of my chat with Mark Stepro from August 2017. I first met Mark when he played in a New York-based band called the Madison Square Gardeners, which was fronted by the now very popular singer-songwriter Aaron Lee Tastian. Mark has been playing with Butch Walker for close to a decade, while also touring and recording with other artists. He spoke to me about how work generally comes to him, what is truly needed to make it as a drummer, and plenty more. These days, how do your gigs usually come to you? Is it a word-of-mouth thing? Does somebody see you playing for Butch and know that you can fill in? Uh, Because I assume that you don't have an agent or somebody out there pitching you for gigs.
1: Uh, Yeah, I don't have an agent. I don't have a manager. Um, I don't know anybody in my particular field that does. I mean, there might be one or two, you might know, one or two. Sure. I mean, I don't know, maybe like Jim Kellner has a manager? I have no idea. But the, the, the direct answer to your question is, where do my gigs come from? The answer is like it's 100% uh, just word of mouth. Um
0: so it's never been social networking, per se. It's more like good work leads to more work.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I like this. There's this banjo player from Seattle uh, named Danny Barnes, who's in this band in the 80s called The Bad Livers, and he sort of famously says, uh, networking to him sounds a lot like not working. <laughs> so, I mean, I understand the importance of social media like in uh, as a as independent contractor, so to speak, or whatever, um, but I don't engage in that. Too deeply, I I can't say it's really like led to anything. One thing that I do, again, a little tangential, is I've been playing in this house band uh, at a venue here in L.A. called the Hotel Cafe. That's sort of like a singer-songwriter room or whatever, and um, it's a bunch of guys. And once a month, we'll back up. They'll get ten or twelve artists to come down and play two or three songs with a full house band uh no rehearsal uh they just send the tunes the weekend prior and then on Monday night the last Monday of every month we just do the gig and it's very much like um, training for almost what I would imagine it to be if you were on like a TV band or something you know because there's no no time to um really learn the material you don't really rehearse or whatever so i kind of just make charts really fast and we read it down uh in a live context um anyway that being said sure. that has led to some stuff because it's just like here you are just like every month uh, you just play with 15 new people um and periodically one of them you know needs somebody but at this point i you know we were talking earlier about just kind of one of the keys to doing this is just not stopping and I, i've just been doing it for a long time and i have a lot of friends and i've I, just, I know a lot of people from having done this for a long time, so there's a steady enough group of folks who know me enough to just check in and say, hey, we're doing this thing on this day, are you around? Uh, but Everyone has a high school band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but
0: what was the first band that transitioned you from being somebody who plays for fun to a career? Was it Red Wanting Blue?
1: It's this band that I was in in college for maybe two years, in about two thousand five, two thousand four, before I moved to New York, and that was kind of a, a college band that was really popular in Columbus, Ohio, where I was living at the time. And they're really sweet guys, and they're they're to their credit they're still they're still doing it. It's yeah. it's really impressive, frankly. Um, still putting out records, still touring. Um, but they were the first band that I joined where. Um, they had like real fans and it was a real thing there's this venue in columbus called um the newport music hall that was kind of the mecca like that was where if you played there in my mind you were like a famous band you (laughs) know what i mean um right i used to see guided by voices play there and this other place called little brothers that probably held five or six hundred people they were this band and they had like really high aspirations and i was i don't know 22 and we got we got in the van and we came to LA and we showcased for record labels and we played a bunch of gigs in New York and so that was my first experience with like actual touring and I don't know that we were gone nearly as long as I ultimately ended up being gone when I started doing it out of New York and LA but like we were definitely gone for a period of a couple of weeks at a time and that to answer your question like that was the first like you know road road gig quote-unquote uh that I did before I moved to New York
0: was there a big learning curve for you? Because even the most skilled musician doesn't necessarily know the do's and don'ts of, of touring, doesn't know hotel etiquette, right? Riding in the van etiquette. Was it was it a big uphill battle for you?
1: I wouldn't say it was an uphill battle, but it's interesting that you would point out that there's no. Although hell, I wonder. You know, maybe in Berk, maybe at Berkeley now, there's like a class <laughs> in like how to live in a van. There should be. Yeah. Um, but it's true that a lot of that stuff is just on the quote-unquote job uh, training. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, honestly, man, and this applies uh, in the larger sense to doing this for a career uh, as a whole. I, I, you know, I was raised by good parents, and they raised me to be polite and self-aware and conscientious and not take up all the air in a room. Okay and not bum people out and not put a bunch of weird food in the fridge in the bus and then <laughs> not eat it or not be late or whatever, you know, just sort of basic stuff that, like, I hate to say it, just common sense, etiquette things, but you're absolutely right to, to, to point up, point out that, like, in that context of travel, like, it's this highly, highly compressed version of reality where it's, you know, even at the, you know... The, the higher echelons of like touring in a bus or whatever like that's still like twelve dudes in a submarine you know right. what I mean like it's it's very easy to get on somebody's nerves very very quickly if you're if you're just not aware of your surroundings and if you're so here's an example like every thought that pops into your mind you know uh, mundane as you know the fact that oh this is this iced coffee is pretty good like i don't need to tell everybody that (laughs) you know what i mean like that's that's sort of a thing that you have to learn over a period of time is like you don't need to broadcast your needs to to everybody you know sure uh do you like the term hired gun i'm indifferent to it um it carries with it the implication that you're only doing it for the money and (laughs) and yeah you're right to laugh at that because you know
0: well, uh, isn't everybody doing their job for the money? In well, a that's way? an interesting <laughs> point
1: too. That's an interesting point too. That's absolutely true as well. Although I just I, I, I think about this more and more is that like when somebody asks me to play a gig these days, like how much money it pays is like the fifth question that I have. The first question uh, inevitably is like when is it? Like mm-hmm. that's the most important thing because it's like I've got all this crap going on, so I'm just like. Uh, you know, I got a really bad feeling about the end of August, and if I open my phone, I think I'm going to not be able to do You know, that's the first question. The second question is, who else is doing it? Mm-hmm. You know, like, is it, do I know these people? Do I like these people? Are these really, really incredible musicians? You know, like, sure. that, that stuff carries a ton of weight, because uh, as per, you know, you're talking about the word-of-mouth thing, like, that's, your next gig will come from the guy in the band of the gig that you're on just a year later, huh. you know? and if those are people that you want and also apropos of what i was saying about living in a compressed environment like i just don't want to do it if it's with people that aren't kind people i guess you know having
0: uh, what about
1: 15 years you know on the on the
0: road regularly would you say it's 10 10 to 15 10
1: to 15 i let's so i started my so after i quit playing with that band Red Wanting Blue i moved to New York in 2006 and started playing with a singer named Ben Queller um, which that was my first... So Red, One, Blue, we were like a band, mm-hmm. and just any money that came in from the band, like we would try to pay people's rent and stuff, but it was like churned back into the business of the band, whereas Queller's Thing was my first, like... I mean, I'd played gigs in Columbus, Ohio, where I lived, but like this was the first, like, here is your salary to be on the road with this person per week or whatever. Um, so that was my first... The first time that I was like, okay, now this is my job, um, and that was in 2006, so whatever that is. Yeah, 11. 11 years ago. Yeah. yeah. I had a day job at the drum store in Columbus, Ohio in 2005. That was the last time it wasn't playing drums.
0: When did it become clear to you, and uh, you, you come across as, as a very modest person per se, but when did you stop worrying so much about when uh, the next gig would be coming? Uh, never. Never. No. I, okay.
1: I mean, okay. There are two. There are two answers to that question. the uh, the, the first answer is like I, you know after once that Queller thing took off, like and he's he's an man. He he's like Aaron and Butch too. Like he's he's brilliant. Like this podcast is just me talking about how great my friends are, but <laughs> but it's true. Um, but he, you know, like I did that gig for. A long time and that just really springboarded into a bunch of other stuff oh and one thing I want to say about Queller and Butch too to a certain extent um and I'll get to the answer to this question is that like he kind of took a chance on me and he Ben and Butch in the recording world Ben in the touring world but Ben kind of like to I hope this doesn't come off as egotistical but it's like he like he made me a guy before I was a guy if that makes any sense. He didn't care, he didn't seem to care, that at that point prior to working with him that I hadn't played on Conan or played on Letterman or done Lollapalooza or played gigs in Japan or whatever. You know, I had nothing. I had no, like, resume, quote-unquote, like, on paper. Uh, I could play, um, and I like to think I was easy enough to get along with, but, like, if he had been the type of person who was concerned about somebody's, quote, pedigree or whatever. Like, I def- definitely would not have passed that test or whatever. So he he took a chance on me. Um, Butch, too, with records and stuff. Uh, I You know, I, I hadn't played on a... I'd played on Queller's records, but I hadn't played on, like, big-time, fancy records before playing with Butch, but he didn't care. And he, he took a chance, in it, and it's worked out. Um, but somewhere, you know, after four or five years of playing with Queller, it, 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 enough people were calling, and I hadn't... You know, my parents were concerned about me, and all parents are concerned about their kids, but, like, Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, somewhere around 2008, like, having to kind of explain to my parents, like, well, look, guys, like, you know, because they would pipe in with the concerned parent phone call that (laughs) I'll probably be giving to my son someday, you know, depending on what he does. Um, And I kind of did have to explain to them, like, well, man, the last time I asked you guys for money was when I lived at your house when I was 16. (laughs) I'm not selling drugs, so I'm, somehow I'm doing this, you know what I mean? Like, right. this seems to be working out. I mean, I don't have a, a very lavish lifestyle or anything, but I definitely make enough money to, to do it. So, yeah, I guess at some point I became comfortable. But the other part to that question is, like, part of the key to this is, like, never stop moving. And, you know, every time you finish a gig, like, ostensibly, I mean, I, this is super, like, hyperbolic and neurotic, but, like,
0: it could be. <laughs> I like to Keep going. Well, you,
1: you know, it, I pack up and put my drums back in the studio, and, like, that could be the last time somebody calls me to play. I don't have any control over that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I'm not in charge. And that's, you know, that's kind of the occupational hazard of of doing this for a living, is that, like, I don't get to, the phone might not ring. Hmm. And there's, you know, there's, like, a sub topic there, which is to say that, like, you just sort of have to maybe be smart with your money because it's it's a roller coaster man. You know, some months are good and some months are bad and you just got to make sure you're cool like when it's not so good. Who was the first drummer that really,
0: you know, showed you that you could make a living as a side man?
1: That's a really good question. I think the answer to that question is probably a guy from Jersey, who used to live in New York, who now lives in Memphis, Tennessee, named Stephen Chopek, uh, and he played in the Charlie Hunter Trio in the 90s, Mm -hmm. and he was, he was John Mayer's first big drummer, I think, like, when, whatever that first record was, or whatever, and- Root
0: for Squares? Yeah, yeah, and I
1: met Stephen at a little gig in New York, and he was very, very nice to me, and, um... Was just dispensed some wisdom and was just like a cool guy to hang out with. There were, I I mean, there's a long, long list of guys. Like, there's a guy named Dan Reeser in New York. There's a guy named Tony Mason in New York. All those kind of Lower East Side dudes. Um, And that actually speaks to your earlier question where we were talking about competitiveness or maybe like cattiness or or whatever Hmm. uh, the sort of scarcity model of like don't get on my turf or whatever. When I moved to New York, uh, I went to the living room to watch. Uh, this guitar player named Jim Campolongo oh yeah which I did by pure accident like it was like um, if if you that Bob Dylan documentary that Scorsese made a bunch of years ago where Bob's like well I, I went over down across the GW Bridge and down to the East Village because that's where all the folk singers were like <laughs> I basically did that like I just was like I went to the Lower East Side because my band had played at the Mercury Lounge uh, and I was just like wandered into the living room and Camp was playing and it was Tim Lunsell on bass and Dan Reeser on drums. and Dan Reeser actually is from Ohio as well. He's, he was in this band called Marcy Playground in the 90s. Oh yeah dude oh, and yeah. He, but that that he that belies his talent like he is world world class. Anyway, uh, it was sort of like going to the prom by yourself because <laughs> it was like no you know nobody knows me I'm 23 like t- New York certainly does not need me. Uh, so I need to go like make some friends or whatever you know um... and Jim's gig was like just mind-blowing in all the best possible ways and I kinda went up to Dan afterwards and this is the this is an interesting corollary about networking is that if if it's coming from a genuine place it's it's really really effortless which is to say that all I wanted to say to Dan was that gig was fantastic thank you that I boy I'm sure glad I came in here tonight like wow, you're really, really good. Um, because all of that is true, and I meant all of that. And anyway, back to the, the non-competitiveness thing. Like, within minutes, Dan was just like, cool, oh, wow. so so you're a drummer? Like, you just moved here? Oh, that's great, man. Like, man, we need more drummers. Like, what's, your, give me your email address? And, like, could not have been more sort of welcoming into mm-hmm. me, welcoming me into this community, even though, number one, he didn't have to, and number two, like, if you really wanted to look at it from, like, a harsh economic standpoint, it would, it would, you know, by definition be introducing competition into his world or whatever. But this is the thing that I learned about all these guys who are badass, and I like to think that I've carried this lesson with me. It's like, those guys aren't jerks, because they don't have to be. They're not scared of me. They're not worried about me. They know who they are and they're really good and they have, they've put in the hours and they've established the relationships. And like one more kid from Ohio showing up is not going to like wreck their career. Right. So that frees them up to just be really cool. Next
0: up are highlights of my chat with Victor and Drizzo, as also recorded in LA in August 2017. I first met Victor when he was playing with the singer songwriter Mike Viola. To put it simply, Victor is an in demand session musician. He has also played guitar and keyboard on albums, not just drums, and has some major credits as a songwriter. His initial success as a drummer came from playing with punk bands, which we spoke about. We also briefly talked about his son, Casper and who who is following in his father's footsteps as a musician. Did you ever play an instrument in a band besides the drums?
2: had a moment in Los Angeles uh, where I was getting called to do guitar for a little bit I- I ended up playing a uh, guitar on a Sheryl Crow track, uh, a cover of uh, sweet child of mine.
0: Was that song for the big daddy soundtrack?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of came about from Scott Weiland. He, when I hooked up with him initially, his brother was playing drums and uh, somehow I don't even know how, but I was playing keyboards, which I'm not very good at, but somehow he had me doing that a lot and playing other instruments and, I think from working with him people saw credits that I did that and I was getting called to do stuff like that but I wouldn't say that I'm really good at anything maybe other than the drums and even that I'm still figuring it out
0: so What was your first credit that you were really proud of
2: First credit I was really proud of the the very first record I did was a Red Cross record and mm-hmm. the thing I was proud about that is that I got actually got to play on the record because what happens for a lot of young bands when you're starting out is that you get signed to a big label, you work with the big producer, and they replace the drums, because generally maybe a drummer couldn't play to a click track. And so I remember being uh, very aware of this and really just working with a metronome and making sure, like, I was like, I'm going to play on this record. I want to play on it. So I feel pretty proud of that. It sounds funny. It's a funny-sounding record in a lot of ways. At
0: what point did you transition from being more of a band drummer to a studio drummer?
2: Yeah, that that was a funny transition. I really had never set out to do that, nor did I think I was good enough. When I thought of a studio drummer, I thought of like a Jeff Beccaro or somebody that in my mind was just so slick and amazing and studied and not being a studied musician. I just never saw that as the path. But I was so determined to want to play music and drums for a living that after failed band, after you know each band failed, I was like, I can't give up and I wanted to, to keep going. And, and just kind of as the years were rolling by and I could record and I could play to a click track, uh, I was just getting more opportunities to do that. And because I think that I was uh, always aware of a lot of different kinds of styles of music that uh, I just was able to slip in and... And one thing led to another, and I just get that I kind of turned into that guy.
0: A big difference between you and other drummers is that you have a lot of songwriting credits. Were you always writing music on the side?
2: Yeah, I think from a very early age, I just I, I just loved music so much. And I really found that like uh, writing songs and understanding songs helped with my drumming because uh, I, I feel it just helps with any instrument to understand like how the correlation of other instruments go together, how they communicate together. Uh, just helps. Yeah. So, do you really think of yourself as a songwriter? Uh, some weeks, yeah. <laughs> some weeks, it's funny it, for me. I'm not a guy like Mike Viola, the great Mike Viola, who it just like flows out of him all the time. I feel like I have these spurts of inspiration, and it may even be a year. I might have one year where it's like I'm going to write a bunch of songs, and then I, and then it just goes away from me for a little bit, and I just focus on other things. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, it just comes back. You know. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't think of myself as a guy that can do it all the time. What about
0: production? Uh, I would imagine there are a lot of production projects, you know, that you contributed to projects that you kind of acted like a producer, but you didn't really get the full credit you deserved.
2: I think that as you do a lot of sessions, you see how things work. And you see how things fit together. And I feel like, yeah, you always once. I mean, to me, that's the art of being a session guy and the skill that a lot of people forget about. Because I I hear guys a lot of times say, uh, oh, if this doesn't work out, I'll just be a session guy. It's not really quite that simple. It's like being able to hear something, get the gist of it immediately and then know what to do and to build upon that because a lot of times it's not just playing a drum track it's playing percussion and seeing how things fit knowing the order of things you should do Uh, and so anytime I hear a song it's just an instinct and I think all guys that are session guys, they have that same instinct. Like there are great guitar players like the great Tim Pierce who like, mm-hmm. it's incredible how this guy, he's not just playing one guitar track, it's building these layers until it just sounds, its uh, he's orchestrating it. Uh, and so in that way you're producing and you get an ear for it and you, you know what works and what doesn't work and you're able to get to it really fast. So how many years
0: uh, have you exclusively been earning a, a living as a musician?
2: I I think I think Red Cross got signed somewhere where I was around 19 or 20. Uh, and I was able to live uh, playing music for a little while there, a couple years. And then I had a couple years uh, where I had my son very early. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a band with my ex-wife. We made a lot of money, lost a lot of money. And so... That really, at that, I had this pivotal moment at about 23 where I had to start working a day job again. I was playing music at night. I'm a young father. And I also have, you know, next uh, not a great education. I'm a high school dropout. So I'm panicking. And I'm like, I need to make this work somehow. And I just felt so driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then luckily, you know, being in the right place in the right time, I was able to to just get more jobs and then it's been a long time since i've had a regular day job so
0: who was the first person that you remember being a sideman like you realized that that person was earning a living and not just being you know the onstage marquee performer
2: gosh that's a great question uh no not really i don't know i i guess there there are moments i feel like uh times when i got to be I, there were maybe the first time i got to play with lee scholar mm-hmm. and i'm like in the room with a lot of these guys i was like wow that's that's i know this guy's history and i know his lineage and i know that's what he does uh or tim pierce and then you just kind of you just start seeing you're in the company and you're getting called to do stuff and you're kind of in that circle of doing stuff and it But I, I, you know, it's, that's a great question. I'm not exactly sure who the first one is. It kind of seemed like it just was this very slow build into it. And the next thing you know, you're just there. Being, you know, pretty young
0: when you started working steadily, did you have imposter syndrome? Like you were feeling that you
2: didn't belong where you were? I think I'm still in that phase of my career. In in a way, it's funny. I talked to some some guys, it's a, yeah, there are times I just have to pin it. I, I wouldn't say it's that so much anymore as, like, I realize how lucky I am. And I realize that it takes a lot more than just skill. Uh, there are a million guys that are great and probably have better skills and better chops than I do. Uh but for whatever reason, maybe I was in the right place, or maybe I thought more about songs, uh, whatever the reasons are, you end up wherever you do. Like, uh, I just feel lucky. And there are times where still today, if I'm playing with somebody that's a great, like Lee Scalar or somebody, I'm like, wow, how did I get here? Because, you know, I go home and I'm still listening to records that I grew up with. Uh, and I hear him and it's like, that was my dream, right? It's just to play music and to make a record, uh, and so yeah, I just always feel
0: very lucky. On the touring end, is the touring lifestyle different for
2: you now than it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago? I feel like I'm better about that warming up especially. I'll go backwards there. Like, uh, yeah, I'm more aware that I need to warm up. I remember touring with a uh, punk rock band, Sam I Am, when I was a younger guy, and just not practicing, been walking out there and then playing this really fast punk rock music, and my arms would start cramping up. I was like, ah, oh, what is this? And you realize, okay, maybe I better start stretching myself out and taking care of myself so I can do this. And especially now when you're playing maybe a three-hour show, three-and-a-half-hour show, you really have to be in shape to do it. You have to be prepared to do it. Uh, And, yes, the technology makes a lot of things easier because I, when my eldest child, my son, who is now 26, when I was touring when he was little... It was, you know, buying a phone card and and writing letters and sending postcards. And it was really hard. Uh, And at that point in my career where the tours just seemed so much longer, Mm -hmm. now I'm pretty lucky with FaceTime and also that a lot of the tours that I'm doing, uh, they don't last that long where you go out for maybe four to six weeks tops and then you get a couple weeks break. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I enjoy that because I while i really love being in the studio if i just had to do that i think that would drive me a little crazy and conversely if i was only a touring guy i think that would drive me crazy like uh yeah missing your family and missing all the stuff it's a it's a it's a funny uh double-edged sword because it's this amazing thing to go and play music in front of people and get paid to do it and then uh it's also amazing thing to be home and in your place and surrounded by people that love you and you love
0: I noticed that you don't have a drum set in your home.
2: When did you start doing that? Uh, I've always, since I have kids, have always kind of kept that separate. And like really, it's hard to play drums when you have little kids in the house or like even have time really to do it. I do have a little Roland kit here that I'll play. And, and really what my favorite thing to do is watch baseball and play on a practice pad. Because also for me, I didn't have a drum set till late. Uh... So uh, there's something about playing on a practice pad that makes me feel like a kid and then just sitting in front of a baseball game, which, as you know, is pretty can be pretty long sometimes. I feel like uh, I'm more motivated to practice. Like, playing drums by myself, for me, has always been kind of boring. But if I'm doing something else, I'm watching a game, I can play the whole game, and I feel like I actually accomplished something while watching a game.
0: I guess Sam, I am, in Red Cross, you know, they can be considered punk rock.
2: Yeah, they, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so you started off as a punk rock drummer, yet artists like Willie Nelson and Sheryl Crow—they're far from punk artists. Were you primarily listening to punk rock at the beginning of your career?
2: No, as a matter of fact, I used to drive the Sam I Am guys absolutely bonkers because I would be playing Marvin Gaye records and like uh, insisting that like I got to control the stereo a lot. Like, uh, yeah, I've always been into the same stuff, which is generally not been what I've been playing at the time but I love how that usually gives you a different take on things. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, I think if you were into one kind of music or like only listen to that genre that you were playing, I think it would limit you. There's something kind of uh, opens, widens your vocabulary by listening to other stuff other than what you're playing. The Sheryl Crow record
0: that you toured in support of, did you also play on the studio album itself?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Were you sought out for that album because they knew of your soul background?
2: No, it was coincident. Literally, I was, uh, they were recording at Henson Mm -hmm. uh, Studios and I was there on another session. And as I was walking down the hallway, I saw one of the producers who told me that whoever was in there on the first day wasn't working out and asked if I would show up the next day. And so that was one of those just luck being in the right place.
0: In terms of being a mostly session player these days, how much of what you do these days is based on networking versus, say, word of mouth or things just happening naturally?
2: I, I'm a terrible networker, terrible, <laughs> horrible. I, and I've been trying out, trying to be on social media. That's not going very well for me. I just feel uncomfortable with it. Uh, for me, it just has always been word of mouth. And I always believe you're just as good as the last thing you did. Uh and most of my recommendations always have come from either a producer, an engineer, or even the guys that are assistants on records. Uh, mm. And so I was, I don't know. Uh, yeah, getting work, I, it's a, it's, that's really funny business Like uh, for me. like uh, it's, it's, it's not even the thing you could, even if you were the greatest networker, you can't call somebody and say, hey, I want to work today. It just doesn't, it's never worked that way, or I haven't seen it work that way, maybe for some guys.
0: You said earlier that you're only as good as your last session. So speaking of that, what was the last session that you were part of?
2: Uh, Jessica Simpson <laughs> and and Boyzone, some some uber pop. Can you think of,
0: you know, offhand an amazing or popular thing that you played on that you got a call to immediately come down and play on? Something you did, you know, a few takes on, then you went home without thinking much about it.
2: Uh, Well, offhand, I think there was a Macy Gray track, uh, Sweet Baby, which was a single that I remember we cut at 4 o'clock in the morning, and literally I felt like I was asleep during the tracking of it. Uh, Other than that, like, uh, yeah, I think I got called to do, like, uh, the first Avril Lavigne was one of those calls, like, hey, what are you doing? Can you come over and play? And I remember playing on it, not even thinking that much of it, only a couple takes and you leave, and... Leaves your mind, and then a couple months later, you're in the grocery store or something. You're like, wait a minute. I know this from somewhere, and and there it is. Do you often hear music that you played on while you're out shopping? I hear it in the mall a lot, which I don't know is like either a a blessing or a curse. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) When you're out and you hear something that you played on when you're
0: shopping or doing something like that, do you feel proud and a sense of an accomplishment or more that it's just your day job?
2: No, I still feel like a little kid and uh it I love when it happens when I'm with my daughters uh and we'll be somewhere just out shopping and you hear something that yeah I still I don't know, I for whatever reason I'm still very in touch with the little kid inside and I I get very excited and I've been able to hold on to that and it really it does help like for touring or or anything like the grind of any job if you have gratitude, you're always going to be, you know, it makes, I feel happy. I feel happy and lucky.
0: Well, where do you think your gratitude comes from? A lot of people, they can really spend their entire life without feeling grateful.
2: Yeah, I had a a pretty rough upbringing. And so for me, music was always my escape very early on. And uh, it was what I held on to. And so I don't know. I'm always in touch with that. There's something about me that whatever I went through as a kid, I am, it's ingrained in me. Uh, I will always be 8 or 10 years old and have the, that eyesight and be able to see uh, just how lucky I am and of all the things that mm-hmm. I really loved. And having that same passion of like finding a song and wanting to hear it a 100 times over and over. Last but not least... I met up
0: with a man known as Wolf at his New York apartment earlier this year. Wolf studied at the Berklee College of Music and first cut his teeth playing with Late Night with David Letterman guitarist Hiram Bullock. As Wolf was responsible for the drum programming on songs like Katy Perry's Kissed a Girl, Avril Lavigne's Girlfriend, and Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball, there is no doubt that you have heard his percussion on many occasions. Wolf spoke to me about his journey from jazz to pop, And what he has not yet accomplished when exactly was the line drawn in the sand that you realized that you weren't going to be a tour specific drummer more of a studio guy
3: i was heading that way anyway from my first sessions i knew i liked doing it um but i didn't draw the line in the sand until 1999. i had already i was doing gigs with my with my musical heroes not making a lot of money, not getting great the groups. some good endorsements but but some not. And and my friends that were making ten times a week what I was making and were, you know, getting much better endorsement deals than me, they were playing with big pop stars. So I kind of like planted seeds and that eventually manifested and, and from like ninety-five on I was playing like with big arenas, playing T V all making way more money, having like my own drum techs all the shit that I wanted, and um, I ultimately realized that that kind of felt like I was playing in a wedding band again. Except it was a much bigger, you know, a much bigger scale and way better treatment. But ultimately, I found myself, like, watching the clock the same way I used to, like, trying to, like, count down the songs to the end of the wedding. I was, like, be playing in Wembley and looking at my set list, being like, all right, two more songs to go. <laughs> Can't wait to get the fuck off stage. So, and in the meantime, I'd be out of town, I'd be missing calls for sessions. So, and another, a couple other things happened, like the, the artists that I really loved touring with, one, like, effectively retired from touring, at least back then. And then uh, two of them died, including Hiram, who we talked about, and also Grover Washington Jr. And and I was like, you know what, I, I don't think I'm going to, like, really get any, like, do better than that for, like, musically or financially. I did a couple of these like things with smaller market bands, like like worked in Japan for a while, making huge money with the J-pop artist. Um, same thing with the artists that you wouldn't know; most people in the States wouldn't know, but were massive in the UK. And I would just like 99, 2000. I just decided to you know the same, burn the ships. Hmm. I just started telling people I wasn't available for touring anymore, knowing that I might be fucking myself. But I figured. The only way I'm going to really make it work as a session drummer is if I don't give myself in like a, an escape plan. So, um, yeah, and fortunately the programming thing, because I also saw the writing on the wall, I knew programming was going to be necessary for me to pick up the slack, because I saw that there was mm-hmm. less and less work for live drums on, on major sessions.
0: Now, having played on some of the most famous songs of the last 10, 15 years, how does that make you feel? And I ask that that's a very general question, yeah. but... When you're at CBS, you hear one of those
3: songs. Yeah. Does it make you feel a certain way? Yes and no. I, it's, I've it's i never made it a secret that I never listened to that. I listen to, to new music just to stay current because I have to keep my, my sonic vocabulary up to stay relevant as a hired gun. But I never listen to modern pop for, for pleasure. Or almost never. And um, so I don't feel anything like I love this song or anything. But there's a I feel... I don't know. It's like I'm giving my like inner child a high five. It's like, yeah, you you made it. You know, because when I was a kid, I didn't have anybody in my family. Like I've always been envious of my friends that grew up in the music business. Like they they knew it's something you could achieve, and I came up with the opposite with like the whole immigrant mentality, where it's like you're the first generation that gets to go to college, and you have to get a real job. And music music's great for a hobby, but it's you know you got to be realistic. And so yeah, it wasn't something that that I grew up knowing that like one could could do and you, and now it's like anybody could do it but I mean not obviously not anybody but you know it's 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 attainable to anybody that, that has the talent and is willing to like put the work in hmm. so um but as a kid it didn't seem realistic to me I still did it because I was passionate about it so yeah I, I feel nostalgic I guess yeah so yeah that's really how I feel I feel like I'm just high-fiving my like inner child being like yeah you made it. <laughs> what was the first gig that you took in like your post-jazz career? I don't want to say post-jazz because I was still doing some jazz gigs in between. But do you mean like my first pop gig? Your, or... your first pop
0: gig where it was no longer like, okay, where's my next check coming from? Oh. This, is, this is a real grind in a
3: in a scary way. Oh, um... Annie Lennox. That was like nine. That's the one thing that's not a plaque up there. That's she, she. That's an ad from I guess the New York Times or something. It was from when she did the, her Central Park show. So she had her management like buy like I don't know how many copies of the paper, and she signed once each member of the band had a frame and gave it to us. Um, yeah, that was that was a big jump for me. Um, but I mean, that thing of where's my next paycheck. That was still a thing, but instead of being where's my next paycheck week to week, it was like year to year. I'd be on retainer with, with a big artist for six months, a year, or whatever. And then when that would end, I would live off of that. And, and sometimes it got a little scary. It might, it might be a year before, not a year, but it, maybe six months between tours. Like when one tour ends and I'm waiting for and I, and I know I have to say no to lower level tours because I don't, I'm not the kind of person who will just like leave somebody hanging and quit in the middle of the gig. So if it's an, if it's an artist that I wouldn't be willing to stay out with it definitely. and I knew there were bigger things around the corner, I would just say no to a lot of shit and, and then I'd watch my savings just dip and dip, <laughs> and dip and dip and I remember once I was down to like my last, I don't know, like under a thousand dollars. In the bank no tour on the horizon and i like thrown my tux out so i couldn't do any more weddings so but and like yeah like that like that week when i was when i knew like my next rent check was going to wipe me out that week i, did, I got a call and they're like what are you doing tomorrow we start production rehearsals and then i'm back on retainer with a different artist and, so yeah that's still that was still a thing it just it wasn't week to week like it used to be got it yeah
0: uh have you run into a lot of other people in what you currently do now
3: who also had that jazz to pop uh transition yeah i mean a lot of the guys that i went to berkeley with or still do that um do you know did you know who larry coriel was he was like considered the father of fusion guitar and his son julian coriel uh, was at berkeley and we're we're friends we i've done a bunch of his records and um we're still very close friends. He, um, he's in LA. He's been playing guitar with Alanis Morissette for years, um, and a bunch of other people. But like, yeah, he's somebody that like kind of came up as a jazz guy and shifted into like the pop world and the rock world. I think he just posted something. He was on tour with D. Snyder something. So like, yeah, he's just he's one of those guys. But a lot of guys that came up with um, Dave Filome, who was the keyword player in Hiram Bullock's band with me. We both dropped out of Brooklyn to play with Hiram. Dave is like the king of like the working LA keyboard players. He's he's part of Ricky Minor's crew. Do you know Ricky Minor? My- yes. Yeah, American Idol. American American Idol show. Yeah. And he also does a lot of these side gigs. Like you'll see like Stephen Wonder doing a concert at the White House when Obama was like Dave. When Obama was in office, Dave was like every other week on Facebook. He's like I'm playing at the White House tonight. And, and um, yeah, and like if you and he's been in the house band, the Grammys and the Oscars, and he's. He's played, like, any major, like, pop and rock artist, chances are he's, he's either worked with them through one of those shows, or he's actually toured with them or done spot dates with them. Mm-hmm. And But, you know, when, when we were coming up, he was he was a jazz dude, and now he's... I mean, he still does jazz for fun, but his, his bread and butter is, like, pop and rock and R&B. Do you spend a lot of time actually practicing these things? More than I did for most of my career, because most of my career, by the time I was, like, Really, in the what I call the majors, basically from when I dropped out of Berkeley on. Because I was already digging at Berkeley, but it wasn't like any signed artist yet. Um, Hiram, I was still at Berkeley when I started playing with him, mm-hmm. but I dropped out immediately. And um, so then I didn't really have time to practice anymore, but I was, wor- I, was, I was sitting behind a kit all the time. Like if I look at my date books, when I still used to have date books from like the late 80s or early 90s, even so like 2000, I kept actual paper calendars. Um, there It was just nonstop. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like talking about the wedding Band. Like, I'd be playing a bar mitzvah Friday night, Saturday morning, I wake up in Tokyo. Or Saturday night, whatever the time difference was. And then a week later, after a week of gigs in Tokyo, I'm back playing at the bitter end with some singer-songwriter. And then from there, I go to Nell's. you remember Nell's? Or the China Club. Maybe the clubs that okay. were really big in the 90s, where then I'm playing, like, a midnight set there. And it was like that every day. So, like, practicing wasn't... I just didn't have time to... But now, because I do so much programming, there, there are times where I might not pick up sticks for weeks, so I decided I wanted to, to actually have a drum set set up somewhere. So I have a, I have a practice room in Brooklyn, and uh, when I got it, I was planning on going at least a few days a week, but just, again, like, just my work schedule gets in the way, and so I'm lucky if I get there a few times a month. But I have this you know, practice pad there. I can still like, sit in front of the TV and work on my hands and keep, keep the muscle memory working. Sure. But um, I don't do, no, I don't do, like, I don't play the drums, just practice drums every day. If I had a house, I would. I have friends that they'll post, um, like, videos all day, every day on Instagram, and it's like, man, I wish I had that luxury to <laughs> just, like, to be that fluid again where I, where I was playing drums all the time.
0: Well, with your relationship with music these days, do you listen to it when you're not working?
3: Um, a handful of things I do listen to, um, but mostly no. Like, I got a number today and as soon as I got I asked the guy to turn the music down. So it's like, I'm not working, I don't want to hear music, so, um, yeah. No, I, I don't, and most of the stuff I do listen to just for pleasure, it's mostly older stuff. So, I don't listen to, I listen to very few contemporary artists just for fun.
0: Well then, where does your time go when you're not working, what do you like to do to decompress or just be a regular person?
3: Um, that's the thing. I, there's I don't do a lot of regular person shit. And that's why my my almost third marriage didn't become a third marriage because um, yeah, uh, I, I I do photography. Um, I, I I still love visual art. I Grew up doing visual art and music and just kind of music. I dove into first. Um, I cook. I read, I meditate, I saw about like the personal growth stuff, that that to me is like a daily practice. When you yeah.
0: say, what what do you like to do for fun, they'll yeah. say concerts or that kind oh, of yeah, thing. Oh yeah, no,
3: I I hate going to shows. I rarely go to shows. I mean, once in a while, like the last show I remember going to and like staying for the whole thing and not being bored was The Time.
0: Mars staying The Time? Yeah,
3: love The Time. And then the last show before that, which was years before, was D'Angelo in New Orleans at the Essence Fest, um, like 90, 98, 99. I was, I was playing the Essence Fest with a different art artist, so. And the last one before that was in Madrid or Barcelona, I forget, it was, I was playing there with another artist, we had a day off and Massive Attack, I was playing there, I saw him. And so like, there's like, literally like, I can count on one hand the amount of concerts in the last 20 years that I've been to that i really liked. Otherwise, if I go to a show, it's just for like networking. Even if I love the artists and I love the music, I can't, like, after a few songs, I'm, like, I've had my, my fill and I'm bored. It's not just about the music. It's also, um, I have, like, jacked senses. There's this thing called sensory processing sensitivity, and a small segment of humanity has it. So, um, all of my senses are just really heightened, which is one of the reasons, like, for people listening, it's dark in here. Like, <laughs> so, yet being... When I I used to play big arena shows, I I didn't care if there were 20,000 people in the room because that's just, like, static to me. And I'm focused. You're playing music, you're in that flow state. You're not really, like, your senses aren't. They're just kind of all in music. But we would go backstage for a meet and greet afterwards in, like, a brightly lit room with, like, 50 or 100 people there. And, like, my nervous system, like, just from all the sensory information, it's sensory overload, which would just, like, activate my sympathetic nervous system which is basically so I, I would always feel like I was in fight-or-flight mode and not know why that's one of the things I learned in therapy because the strength I went to is not just a psychiatrist he's also a psychopharmacologist and a neurologist so like broke down the neuroscience behind like why like things that that don't stress out regular people like fuck me up so um if I if I want to medicate I can go out to to clubs and have fun, but if I'm there and I'm not on anything that's kind of like like kind of compressing my nervous system, it's just not fun for me.
0: Career wise, is there anything that you're still hoping to accomplish or still want to
3: do in your career you haven't done yet? Um, I would like to have one album. I'm always take when I get new platinum plaques, I take old ones down and put them in my storage. Like the Bee Gees Still Waters, that was actually my first plat platinum plaque. That's in my story locker with a bunch of others. So I would like to have one that's for a record that I actually really enjoy listening to. Um, like, do you know who Matt Johnson is? Mm-hmm. So like I'm with Jeff Buckley, yeah. And yeah. so like he's got grace, you know what I mean? I would like to have a grace or something. I mean, there are very few grace type records. Like Jeff Buckley, grace that album. Um, it's that's such a an incredible record, and it's 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 iconic, and everybody knows it, and it's it's. Ultimate cred in in the music industry, and he's done a lot of cool shit since then. He plays with St. Vincent now, he was playing with Rufus Wainwright and Mm a bunch of other people, John Mayer. Um, But he had, even if he didn't do anything else, or it's like Annie Newmark, if if the only thing he did was Fly Stone Fresh, that's that record that just like will stand the test of time. I would like to have one, even though I play on some huge iconic records that will be remembered forever they won't be remembered with the same type of credit, musical credibility. So I'd like to have something like that where, besides the credibility, it's also just aesthetically pleasing to me.
0: So ultimately, like a Jim Keltner, you hope to be young yeah. in your 70s and
3: beyond. Yes, definitely, yeah. Or I just saw a picture of Roy Haynes, who I want to say he's in his 90s, and he's still getting Like, he's, Jimmy Cobb is 88, I think he's still playing, playing his ass off. Yeah, I mean, those are like jazz guys, but like, yeah, Keltner, the, ses- the session version of the jazz guys, that's what I would like to be doing. Cool. Yeah. So I am closing any last words for the kids? I don't know. It's such a different world now. It's so easy. The information is out there. So it, it's like you could, whatever you want to learn. And I've talked about this other times before. The generation I came up with and the generation before, we kind of had to like learn to like hunt for our food, so to speak, musically. Like if we wanted to figure out some Tony Williams shit, we had to buy the vinyl. So I would put my finger on the turn table and slow it down and try and figure out who was playing. But I would still get certain things wrong. But that's how you kind of develop your own style. Or I would go to a show and see and play. Now, like if, if you want to learn the lick by wh- whatever your favorite drummer is, you go on YouTube. There's there's 200 cover videos of people breaking down the technique. Mm-hmm. Plus, you can probably get a Skype lesson with that drummer yourself, and he'll, he or she will tell you exactly what they did. And it's great. So like this generation of drummers has more chops than any generation before, but it's very homogenous. And so my advice would be like find a way to, to keep your shit unique. You so, which is hard to do when, when the stuff is, it's like, why do you want to go and do it the hard way when it's just right there for you? But find a way to, to do it the hard way or something, I don't know. Figure out some way to to make it your own.
0: Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time, have a great Shabbos.